0: To On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word.
1: We'll be looking this morning at a section of Scripture that scholars call the Great Christology, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and we'll only cover half of it this morning. But Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, if you'll follow along as I begin now, in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, and there we read, "'He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, for six weeks, we've been in a series titled, Who is Jesus? And we began with John chapter 1, and then from there we looked at Jesus' seven metaphorical state, I am statements in the Gospel of John. And this morning we're going to begin looking at this passage of Scripture, which is uh, one of the most significant of all the Bible's teachings about Jesus. In this section, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, stands next to John 1, Philippians 2, and Hebrews 1 as perhaps the most important text in the New Testament for the identification of the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator wrote, this dramatic and powerful passage removes any needless doubt or confusion over Jesus' true identity. It is vital to a proper understanding of the Christian faith. And there's a context to these verses, and so it's important for us to understand the context. So let's just take a moment and and, uh, understand this context together. A dangerous heresy was threatening the young Colossian church, and and this heresy was uh, a combination of many things. It was a deceptive combination of, of Jewish legalism, Greek philosophy, and speculation, Pagan astrology, mysticism, asceticism, the worship of angels. They also claimed to have visions as the basis for their superior knowledge. They believed those alleged visions gave them deeper insights than other people into the divine mysteries. It also had a touch of Christianity. Rather, really, we should say it wore the mask of Christianity, but it was totally false. It used Christian words and Christian phrases, but with different meanings. And this Christian uh, facade made the Colossian error all the more dangerous. The Colossian heretics claimed that they weren't denying the Christian faith, not at all. We're only only taking it now to a, a higher level. And they wanted to introduce the Colossian believers to something in addition to the truth of the gospel that they had heard and believed. They they wanted to introduce them to a a mystical and deeper knowledge and experience of God, a a higher life, they said, so that they could receive all the, the fullness. And much of the Colossian heresy centered on the person of Jesus Christ. It denied the deity of Christ, it denied the humanity of Christ, and it also denied the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. It didn't completely deny Jesus, but it certainly did dethrone him, and it gave Christ a place, but certainly not the supreme place. In other words, it taught that Jesus was insufficient for salvation, that you need to go beyond Jesus into the fullness of what they had to offer. Salvation, they said, required this superior, mystical, secret knowledge beyond that of the gospel which they uh, could provide. And so here in this passage, the Apostle Paul underlines the most important distinctive of our faith. He instructs us about the supremacy of Jesus in creation and redemption. And he stresses that all things are under the sovereign rule and reign of Christ so that if the Colossians needed to pray for something, they didn't need to look anywhere else but to Christ because all things are his. He made it. He rules over all things. In this text, Paul makes the argument that Jesus is the preeminent one, the, the supreme one, not only over our lives, but also over the entire universe, because Paul wants to stress to the Colossians that it is absolutely vital that they truly understand who Christ is. Because as far as Paul is concerned, if we understand who Jesus is, then so much of the rest of the Christian life is going to fall into place. If we understand who Jesus is, it'll take us a long way down the path of spiritual growth and it will protect us from any false teaching which says we need Jesus plus something else. If we truly know who it is that we love and serve, we will know that we don't need to go anywhere else other than Jesus to find all of the resources necessary for the Christian life and godliness, for growth and grace, for a deeper and more intimate knowledge and love of God, and for a greater experience of God's power in our lives. And if we understand who Jesus is, We will know that he is the supreme and all-sufficient sovereign of the universe. And that is a message not just for the Colossians, but for us today. And so in verses 15 to 18, Paul highlights several unique characteristics that qualify Jesus to be the preeminent one who has supremacy over all things. In fact, uh, there is no one passage in the New Testament that lists so many characteristics that point to Jesus' deity as are found in this short but powerful passage. First of all, Paul tells us that Jesus is the preeminent one who has supremacy over all things, number one, because of his relationship to God the Father in verse 15, because of his relationship to creation in verses 16 and 17, And then next week, because of his relationship to the church, and then in verses 19 and 20, Paul provides further explanation of what it means for the Son to be preeminent. So let's look now at verse 15, where Paul shows us that Jesus is the preeminent one who has supremacy over all things because of his relationship to God the Father. We read there in in the first part of verse 15, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of, Of the invisible God. Because the Colossian heretics taught that Jesus was less than God, that he was an angelic angelic like spirit being, Paul begins by declaring that Jesus is nothing less than the exact and unique image of the invisible God. And the Greek word translated here as image means likeness, it's it's a term that expresses the concepts of representation and, and manifestation. And from it, we get our English word, icon, which refers to an image or representation, like like a statue. And it's used in Matthew 22.20 of Caesar's portrait on a coin, and in Revelation 13.14 of the statue of Antichrist. And by using this word, Paul is stressing that Jesus is the perfect image. He is the perfect representation and manifestation of God. Jesus is the perfect image of God in the sense that he possesses the very substance, nature, and character of God. So when you look at Jesus, you see God in the sense that he is the revelation of what God is really like. And as we saw in John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, speaking of Christ, who is at the Father's side. He, Christ, has made him known. Christ has revealed him to us. Hebrews 1.3 describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, just as the sun's light reflects the sun, Jesus reflects God's attributes. He is also the exact imprint or exact representation of God's nature. And the very nature and and character of God have been perfectly revealed to us in Jesus. In him, the invisible God has become visible. And this means that everything that can be said about God the Father can be said about God the Son. God's thoughts and attitudes toward mankind have been made known by Christ. All that Jesus is and does interprets and explains who God is and what he does. And we cannot know the invisible God unless he reveals himself to us, which he has done in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Son of God, the one who is with God at the Father's side. He, John said, has made him known. And Paul's point is simply this, that Jesus is the full, final, and complete revelation of God. He is God in human flesh. That was his claim, and that is what the Scriptures unanimously testify of. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, as Paul will, will say in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Christ is the eternal God in the flesh. He is both fully God and fully man at the same time and the same person. He is God made visible to humanity. And any teaching that makes Jesus less than God in human flesh is not the teaching of Jesus himself or of Paul or the other apostles or of any part of Scripture. Jesus Christ alone is preeminent because he alone is the exact image, the perfect manifestation of the invisible God. And to think anything less of him is nothing but blasphemy and gives evidence of a mind that is blinded by Satan. And so Paul is not proclaiming a Jesus who is you know, some weak example of what God is like or, or merely a God-like in character but not in nature. Paul is not proclaiming a Jesus who is something less than God, someone, uh, who is the highest created being or someone who is a, who is merely a good man, an almost perfect man, someone who is a caring or loving man. He is proclaiming more than that, much more than that. Paul is proclaiming that Jesus is both God and man. He is divine. He's the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God in the flesh. He is God and man. He's perfectly divine. He is the preeminent one. And so Jesus' supremacy is first shown in his relationship with God the Father. He is the exact image, the perfect, absolutely accurate image of the invisible God. And secondly, Paul tells us that Jesus is the preeminent one who has supremacy over all things because of his relationship to creation. Look at the second part of verse 15. And there Paul tells us, he, Jesus, is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, I know that many of you are aware that this text has been misused by cults and false teachers throughout the history of the church. And the Jehovah Witnesses interpret the term firstborn to teach that Jesus was created, that he was the first of all created beings and therefore is not God. And then after having been created, then Jesus became the agent to create, to create all other things. And at first glance, I mean, this phrase might appear to say that Jesus was the first of all created beings. However, not only is this a misunderstanding of the word firstborn, but it also neglects the context and the rest of Scripture's teachings on Jesus being God and not part of creation. And I say this because firstborn can, can mean firstborn chronologically, I mean, we see it used this way in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, which says, And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn, a son. So firstborn can mean firstborn chronologically. However, primarily it refers to being first in rank, first in position, first in honor. In both Greek and Jewish culture, the firstborn was the son who had the right of inheritance. But he was not necessarily the first one born. Say, how do we know? Well, take for example Esau. Although Esau was born first, chronologically, it was Jacob who was the firstborn and received the inheritance. Take for example Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was Abraham's first son. But his second son Isaac was the son of promise, the one that would receive the inheritance. Jesus is is the one with the right to the inheritance of all creation because Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 tells us God appointed Jesus the heir of all things. This term firstborn is used throughout Scripture to demonstrate rank, position, or honor. I mean, look at how God spoke of Israel. He said in Exodus 4.22, speaking to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn son, speaking of the nation of Israel. Well, Israel was not the first nation created, but they were God's special people among all the nations. In Psalm 89, verse 27, God says of the Messiah, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, Was the Messiah or was Jesus the first king on the earth? Well, absolutely not. But he was, is, and will be the highest, most exalted king on the earth. I mean, right now, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and one day he's going to rule on the earth, and all nations are going to submit to him. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead. Even though he was not the first person to be resurrected chronologically, of all ever raised, he is the first in rank, position, and honor. He is the preeminent one. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it refers to Jesus as the firstborn in relation to the church. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, when Jesus declared himself the first, he used a word that means absolutely first. And so in all the above cases, firstborn does not mean first created, first chronologically. Rather, it very clearly means highest in rank, position, and honor. And so when Paul says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he is referring to Christ's supremacy and sovereignty over all creation. If Paul meant that Jesus was the first created being, he would have simply used the Greek word which actually means first created. And not only that, if Paul were teaching that Jesus is a created being, then he would be agreeing with the Colossian heresy contradicting his whole purpose in writing the letter of Colossians in the first place, which was to refute the false teacher. Interpreting firstborn to mean that Jesus is a created being is also out of harmony with the immediate context. Because Paul just finished describing Jesus as the full, final, and complete revelation of God. In verse 16, the next verse, Paul refers to Jesus as the creator of everything that exists. How then could Jesus himself be a created being? And not only that, in verse 17, Paul declares that he, Jesus, is before all things. All things. Jesus existed before anything else was created, and only God existed before the creation. And the point is simply that Jesus Christ is not a created being. He is, in fact, the eternal God, the second member of the Holy Trinity, the the Son of God. And so when Paul said Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he meant that the highest rank and honor belongs to him. And he's stressing the sovereignty and supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is the sovereign Lord over all of creation. And one reason he is is because he is the creator. Look at verse 16. For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so here Paul explains what he meant by the firstborn over all creation in a more specific way. Jesus is the sovereign Lord over creation because he made it. Jesus is not one of the created, he is the creator. And by him, Paul says, all things were created. And the words all things are literally the all things, referring to the totality of the entire universe. And the tense this is in, in the Greek, can mean once and for all created. And so what Paul is saying is that by him, by our Lord Jesus Christ, all things, the totality of the entire universe, all that exists, was once and for all created. He made it. And of course, as we learned in John, the the entire Trinity was involved in creation. We know from Genesis 1 that the Holy Spirit was there hovering over the face of the waters. We know God the Father was involved because God is portrayed throughout the Bible as the creator, but the agent of creation that he uses is the Son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 In these last days he was spoken he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also through whom also he created the world 1 Corinthians 8:6 for, the, for there is one god the father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist I mean, God is the creator, but God does all of his creating through the Son. And this doesn't deny God as creator. It doesn't deny the role that the Holy Spirit played in creation. But it says that Jesus, the Son of God, is the agent by which the creating is done. And again, Paul's point is simply that Jesus is the creator of the universe. All that exists came into being by a sovereign act of his supernatural power. By him, all things were created both in heaven and on earth. Everything. Everything was created by Jesus. Heaven, you know, our atmosphere, the upper atmosphere, outer space, the vast galaxies of the universe. Heaven and earth. The visible world around us and all that it consists of. It's it's molecular makeup. The the atoms, neutrons, protons, electrons, gravity, etc., etc., etc. And it's just staggering when we think about it. I mean, it's staggering when we think of the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of the heavenly bodies scattered throughout a universe which is millions of light years across. As one man noted, the sheer size of the universe is staggering. The sun, for example, has a diameter of 864,000 miles, 100 times that of Earth's and it could hold 1.3 million planets the size of Earth inside it. The star Betelgeuse, however, has a diameter of 100 million miles, which is larger than the Earth's orbit around the sun. It takes sunlight traveling at 186,000 miles per second, or the speed of light, about 8.5 minutes to reach Earth. Yet that same light would take more than four years to reach the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, some 24 trillion miles from Earth the galaxy to which our sun belongs, the Milky Way contains hundreds of billions of stars, and astronomers estimate that there are millions or even billions of galaxies. So just think of the wisdom and the knowledge and the power of the creator, and then think of the preciseness, the exactness, and and the, the, the accuracy of every detail. It's amazing how exact and precise. Because any change in the rate of the earth's rotation around the sun or its axis would be catastrophic. I mean, the earth would become either too hot or too cold to support life. If the moon were near to the earth, huge tides would inundate the continents. The change in the composition of the gases that make up our atmosphere would also be fatal to life. I read that a slight change in the mass of the proton would result in the dissolution of hydrogen atoms, which would result in the destruction of the universe because hydrogen is its dominant element. And here on our Earth, it's astounding to think of all the plant and animal life. And Jesus created it all. Even down to the the tiniest creatures. I read that there are some 800,000 catalogued insects with billions in some of the species, all created by Jesus. Jesus is the true God who created everything, visible and invisible, even the invisible spiritual realm. You'll notice that Paul lists in the verse, you'll notice Paul lists, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. And of these, one commentator writes, These are various categories of angels whom Christ created and rules over. There is no comment regarding whether they are holy or fallen, since he is Lord of both groups. Well, the false teachers in Colossae had incorporated into their heresy the worship of angels, including the lie that Jesus was one of them, merely a spirit created by God and inferior to him. But Paul rejects that, and he makes it very clear that angels, whatever their rank, whether holy or fallen, are mere creatures, and their creator is none other than the preeminent one, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose authority they are under. And the purpose of this catalog of angelic ranks is to show the immeasurable superiority of Jesus over any being the false teachers might suggest. And so Paul boldly declares that Jesus is the true God who created everything, even the invisible spiritual world. spiritual world. He is the creator of all. By him, all things were created. And of course, that truth is affirmed by the Apostle John in John chapter 1, verse 3, where John says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I mean, all things were made through him. And then he emphasized that truth by repeating it negatively. Without him was not anything made that was made. And the testimony of nature to its creator is so clear, it's so clear that it's only through willful unbelief that men can reject it. And that's exactly what they do, according to Romans chapter 1. But Jesus is not only the creator. He is also the end. He is the goal. He is the reason for creation. Look back at verse 16. And Paul says, all things were created through him and for him. Through him and for him. I mean, this is an astonishing statement. I mean, Paul is telling us that Jesus is the reason for God's creating and redeeming activity. The purpose of creation is to bring praise and glory and honor to the Son. I mean, for example, this is is typical even of things we create. If a person creates a piece of art, not only is it made for others, it's meant to give glory to the Creator. It shows the Creator's skill and and wisdom and, and creativity. And in a similar way, everything Jesus created was made to bring glory to him. I mean, listen to what David said about creation in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above its handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. I mean, David basically said the heavens are preachers. I mean, every day they speak of God and bring glory to him. And in the same way, because Jesus Christ is God and the creator of all that exists, everything in creation was made for Him and to speak of Him in order to bring Him pray glory and praise and honor. I mean, Scripture declares Christ is preeminent and that He must be exalted because He is the purpose of all things. All things, including His people, were created through Him and for Him, for His glory. And so we go, well, so what? What does this mean? You know, what, what does all of this mean for us? Well, let me give you some practical implications of these truths. First of all, since Jesus created all things, including us, that means that he is our creator. And therefore, all men are accountable to him. And as our creator, he and he alone has the right to tell us how to live and how to relate to him. And of course, we know that he created man to live in fellowship with him, to have fellowship and communion with him, to worship him, love him, and adore him, to to serve him and glorify him. But you know the story. Adam Willfully disobeyed God's command, and his sin has been passed down to every human being that has ever been born except one, Jesus. And so all men are born into this world sinners by birth, sinners by nature, and sinners by conduct, and therefore they are alienated from a holy God and deserving of nothing but death. So all men stand condemned before a holy God. And the thing that is, we can do nothing to change our nature. There's absolutely nothing we can do to make ourselves right and acceptable to God. And the first sin the sinner ever commits is enough to condemn him to hell for eternity. That's how God views sin. And God cannot overlook man's sin. He is too holy. And he is just. So all sin must and will be punished. And of course we know from the Bible, the wages of sin is death. Not only physical death, but eternal death, meaning eternal separation from God in a place of eternal torment. That's man's default condition and destination. All men stand condemned before a holy God. But God is by nature a Savior, isn't he? And he so loved the world that he devised the means by which man can be saved. Someone had to die for sin, because sin will be punished, and it requires death. So somebody had to die, but you'd have to be perfect and sinless. No one on the earth would ever fit that bill. And so God sent his only son into the world. And Jesus humbled himself to a degree that we cannot begin to understand, and he came and he became a man, a servant, and then he lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, the life that you and I could never live, should have lived, but could never live. And then after being falsely accused of crimes he did not commit, he was sentenced to death by crucifixion and Jesus was crucified. And as he was on the cross, God poured out his holy, furious wrath and punishment against sin upon Jesus. On the cross, God punished Jesus as if he had lived your sinful life and my sinful life so that he could treat us as if we had lived Jesus' perfect, sinless life. And because the wages of sin is death, Jesus died for our sins. And his death satisfied the demands of God's justice against sinners. Jesus died, was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead for our justification. And after a period of 40 days, he ascended back to heaven, where he is today, seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for all of those who belong to him. And as a result of Christ's finished work, the way to be reconciled to a holy God has been made. All our sin was punished on Jesus. The price has been paid in full. The way of salvation opened. And so God offers uh, to all men salvation as a free gift for all who will believe. That is the gospel. That is the good news from heaven, announcing what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is only one saving response to the gospel. And what is that? Well, it's what the Bible tells us. And What does the Bible tell us? It tells us to repent and believe. What must we do to be saved? Repent and believe. So there's one saving response to the gospel, repent, which means a change of mind that results in a change of direction. So you must repent, turn from the sinful life you're living to God and run to him and then believe, repent and believe. Believe in what? Well, believe in, trust in, rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work alone for salvation. And all who do will be saved. And when they're saved, a miracle happens. They're made new creatures in Christ. Their sins are forgiven. They're joined together with Christ. And all of the benefits of Christ become theirs through faith. And they have the promise of everlasting life and everlasting fellowship with God and the joy of basking in his love and his glory for all eternity. That's why the gospel is called the good news. So what does all of it mean since Christ is our creator? Well, that's first and foremost. It means that he is our creator, and he commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. And then after a person comes to faith in Christ, we're called to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're called to learn about him, that we might know him, love him, serve him, and give him our allegiance and our worship. And since Jesus created all things, it also means he understands us and the needs we have better than we do. Since Jesus created all things, it means no power in this world is superior to his. That means nothing can ultimately harm us if we are in Christ. Since Jesus is the end of all things, only the person who is following him is heading in the right direction. So if you're not following Christ, if you're not in Christ, you're headed in the wrong direction. You are headed this morning to an eternal hell. That is man's default destination apart from Christ. Since all things have been created by him, then that should cause us to look to him to understand what purpose we have in life. Because none of us are accidents. And if we're to understand life, and there's only one person to whom we can look for the answer. Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Creator. Everything began with Him, and it will end with Him. All things began at His command, and all things will end at His command. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. One day, everything, everything, and everyone will give Him glory and since this is true since all these things are true we should live completely before uh, completely for him because any other course is completely irrational for the believer it's totally irrational And Paul used similar logic in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, where he said, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then in the very next verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul called us to total commitment when he said, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which he concluded is your spiritual, that is, your logical, rational worship, or your logical, rational religious service. In other words, what he's saying there is in light of all that that Jesus is and in light of all that Jesus has done for us, the only logical, rational thing for a believer to do is to totally commit our lives to him. So let me ask you something. As a believer, is your life rational or irrational? You know, are you living totally for Jesus? Or are you living outside rationality? Is your life rational or irrational? And then Paul says in verse 17, if you'll notice, and he, Jesus, is before all things. He is before all things. I mean, this is another statement of the pre-existence of Christ. The words, He is, describes Jesus' absolute existence as the eternal I am. And in the Greek, this is a very intensive word and could be translated, He Himself and no other is continually before all things. And so a statement of the preexistence of Christ. And preexistence assumes eternality, and only God is eternal. And so this means that Jesus is not a created being who later created the universe, but the eternal God himself, who existed as the I Am before anything was created. Jesus Christ has eternally existed as part of the Godhead. He existed before any material thing ever existed. He existed before matter. He created matter. And then Paul says, look, looking back at verse 17, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things And then Paul says, and in him all things hold together. And the tense of this in the Greek tells us that Christ continues now to hold all things together, and apart from his continuous activity, everything would absolutely disintegrate. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so Jesus not only created everything that exists, he also sustains everything that exists. I mean, that's it. Jesus made everything, and he sustains everything. I mean, that is so simple to say, and yet that is so profound and unfathomably deep. I mean, just think of it. The Lord Jesus Christ is a sustaining and supportive power by which all that he has conceived and created uh, you know he it remains and continues in its present form because of him he's the sustaining and supportive power from the moment of its inception until now and as for as long as he wills jesus sustains all things guides all things and quite literally holds all things together you know scientists and, and physicists have have wondered what holds the atom together. You know, what, what is the atomic glue, they wonder. And none of them know. But the simplest believer knows. I mean, we know. Jesus is the atomic glue. He holds all things together by the word of his power. He is the energy of the universe, and there is nothing in this universe that is outside of his control. I love what R.C. Sproul said. He said, there is not one rogue molecule in the entire universe. And that's true. Nothing in the universe is outside of his control. You see, Jesus didn't create the universe and then go off and sit in a corner and then just let natural law take its course. The law of gravity and in all the rest, the laws by which the universe hangs together are not only scientific laws, but they're also divine laws. They are all an expression of the mind and the will of the Son. I mean, everything exists and is sustained in their present form by Jesus Christ, who is the cohesive power that keeps all things intact. He's the one who maintains the delicate balance necessary for life's existence. He's the one that, that maintains the, the delicacies of the ecosystem, the, the balance of nature in the plant and animal world. It's all held together and ordered by Him. In every moment of every day, he keeps the heavenly bodies sustained in their orbits. He makes the sun to shine, the wind to blow, the rain to fall, the earth to rotate, the seasons to come and go. He is the one who continues to grant life to our bodies. I mean, think of it. Every heartbeat, every electrical impulse flying through our brains, every flutter of an eyelid, every breath you and I breathe, every rustle of every blade of grass is sustained by the Son of God. I mean, truly did Paul say in Acts 17, 28, that in him we live and move and have our being. You know, this world is a cosmos rather than a chaos because of the continuous exertion of the divine power from the risen Christ. And if at any moment, and for any reason, he should withdraw his power again, it would all just absolutely disintegrate. It would just vaporize and vanish into a vacuum of nothingness. And one day it will. Peter describes that day as the one when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Christ will remove his his sustaining power. And everything will just come apart down to the atoms and molecules. It'll be like a massive uh, nuclear explosion. It will all come apart and all disintegrate. So what all this means to us is that not only is the sun the agent of creation in the beginning and the goal of creation in the end, but between the beginning and the end during time as we know it Jesus is the one who holds together the entire universe he sustains all things he guides all things and he is in the process of bringing all things to their consummation in and for himself and so here's a simple application if Christ created and sustains all that exists and He does, if He sustains both the natural order and the affairs of men and He does, then how could you or I or any believer question His sufficiency for our salvation through his substitutionary atoning death? How could you or I question His sufficiency for for the Christian life now? How can we possibly think that he is inadequate in our daily walk? That he isn't enough? That we need something in addition? I mean, how can we possibly think that he's inadequate in our daily walk and that we we have to look somewhere else for things that pertain to life and godliness? Paul tells us that Jesus is the preeminent one. He is the one who has supremacy over all things because of his relationship to God the Father and because of his relationship to creation. And so in answer to the question we've been asking throughout this series, who is Jesus? Well, what have we seen today? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he is the full, final, and complete revelation of God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, meaning he is is the sovereign Lord over all of creation and thus has the highest place. We've seen that Jesus is creator of all. By him all things that exist were created. He is the creator of everything, every cosmic speck, every spirit. He's the creator of all that exists. We've seen that Jesus is the final goal. All things were created through him and for him, for his glory and honor and praise. All creation is moving toward him. And we've seen that Jesus is before all things. He has eternally existed as part of the Godhead, he existed before any material thing ever existed. And we've seen that in Jesus, all things hold together. He not only created everything that exists, He sustains all things, He guides all things, and quite literally holds all things together by the word of His power, and He is in the process of providentially bringing all things to their consummation in and for Himself. Is that the Jesus you know? So often we have such, or most often we have such limited, uh, thoughts of who Jesus is. And it's generally gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, the, the humble carpenter who came and died for our sin. And that's such a superficial knowledge. I mean just think of all of the things that Jesus is that we've been studying for seven weeks now. Our minds can't contain all that Jesus is. I mean, it's just staggering. It's just staggering. And since we belong to Jesus, you know, when we truly understand what is, what is being said here, when we come to understand who Jesus is, it is absolutely amazing that we would ever consider looking anywhere else for meaning and purpose in life. Since he is the creator who made us and the one who holds all things together by his power, don't you think he knows how best to fix and order our lives? One commentator tells the story of a South American company that bought a, a real high-end printing machine from a firm here in the U.S. And after it had been shipped overseas and completely assembled, uh, uh, the technicians couldn't get it to operate properly. I mean, their, their, their best personnel tried to fix the problem and get it properly adjusted, but, I mean, to no avail. And so finally, the the company contacted the manufacturer, asking the company to send a representative immediately to come and fix this thing. Well, realizing the urgency of the request, the U.S. firm thought it best to actually send the man who had designed the press. So when he arrived in South America, the the company officials were very skeptical. They they were thinking, man, this guy is, is way too young and inexperienced. And after some discussion, they sent this message to the manufacturer. Your man is too young. Send a more experienced person. And the reply came back, he made the machine. He can fix it. Jesus made us. He knows how best to fix us and order our lives. And yet I wonder if, if some among us have been skeptical of Jesus, thinking that he's too distant from us or he's too far removed from our problems, which somehow we think are unique. Or that he's too old-fashioned and, and unfamiliar. He's just completely out of touch with our culture to know, and, uh, to know how to make sense of our lives. But friends, I would remind us all Jesus created us. And he not only created us, he sustains us. We were made by him and for him. We were made for his eternal glory and his praise and his honor. And so we need to bring our personal problems, our hurts, our pain, our suffering, our trials, our difficulties to him. because he knows how to solve them. I mean, he knows how to fix us. You know, Paul wants every Christian and every person to know that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is the preeminent one, preeminent over his natural creation, the universe. I mean, God's settled purpose is that in everything, Christ might be preeminent. But the question then before us all is, is he, is Jesus preeminent in our lives? Is Jesus preeminent in your life? In other words, does he have first place in your life? Does he have first place over your thought life? Does he have first place over your words? Does he have first place over how you use your time? I mean, does he have first place over your finances? Does he have first place over your entertainment choices? So really what we're saying is, does he have first place in everything in your life? Because he should. He should have first place in everything in all our lives. Why? Because our reason for being here Our great purpose in life is to pursue a deeper and more intimate relationship with Him. We are here to know Him, love Him, worship Him, and serve Him, and to become more and more like Him, and to live our lives for Him to the glory of God. Searching questions. But may the Lord work these things in all our hearts and in all our lives for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Let's stand and
0: pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the word.
1: If you've been blessed by today's message or if you have any
0: questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530 547 4400. Again, 530 547 4400. Or write to us at PO Box 837, Palisadro, California 96073. You can also email us through the church website at Calvary dot PC.org. Calvary Bible PC.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love. I